Unmistakable tone of the three-string gimbri, signature instrument of the Gnawa master. The Gnawa are healers who bridge the worlds of humans and spirits. If the Gnawa sing the right song for a spirit inside you, just hearing that song might make it rise up and possess you. Believe me, it happens in Morocco every day. <laughs> Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. This hip-deep edition, Traveling Spirit Masters, the Gnawa of Morocco. The Gnawa master we are hearing now is Si Mohamed Chauki of Rabat. He's singing from the musical suite called Ouled Bambara, the Sons of Bambara. The suite evokes the suffering of Gnawa ancestors who are brought to Morocco from West Africa as slaves. Tied in sacks they brought us, in the camel bags, and they sold us in the wool market. May God pardon them. They took us from our country. They parted us from our parents. They brought us, alas, to the wool souk, and they sold us children far from our country. That's Deborah Caption reciting words from the Ouled Bambara Suite. Deborah is professor of performance studies at New York University and author of the book Traveling Spirit Masters, Moroccan Gnawa, Trance and Music in the Global Marketplace. Deborah spent years immersing herself in the lives and practices of the Gnawa. She attended many ceremonies with Si Mohamed Chauki and other Gnawa masters. Deborah says one key to the power and popularity of the Gnawa is the experience their music can inspire in those who listen deeply. The experience of trance. Trance is ubiquitous in Morocco. It is a culture of trance. It is everywhere. I've seen people go into trance listening to popular music on the street. I've seen people go into trance in context of Sufi music, but also popular music, Nesel Riwan. This trance aesthetic has become really the, the signature aesthetic of Moroccan music. That's Nasel Giwan with Saif Al-Batar, the Reaper. We'll hear more from this group and from Deborah Caption as we trace the history of the Gnawa right up to their contemporary work in the global marketplace. Later on, we'll hear from one of the world's most famous Gnawa musicians, Hassan Hakmoun. I've also interviewed masters who are not here anymore, and each one of them say different story about the Gnawa, which is very funny. Most of them, 99% will say, Gnawa come from Africa, and I will say, excuse me, but Morocco is in Africa. <laughs> of course. In this program, we'll hear the Gnawa's history of slavery, spirits, and celebration on the world stage. We'll hear from Moroccan historian Mohamed Enaji. And with help from Deborah Caption and fellow Gnawa scholar Tim Abdelafusen, we'll take you through the stages of an all-night spirit possession ceremony. And we'll hear how Gnawa music has infiltrated jazz, rock, and pop far beyond Morocco's borders. That and more coming up. But first, let's hear from a group that's helped popularize Gnawa music in Europe. 
Barcelona-based Nas Marrakesh with Ana Anta. Nas Marrakesh, kicking off our hip-deep adventure with the traveling spirit masters of Morocco. Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. As we've said in past Afropop programs, the ancestors of the Gnawa were brought to Morocco as slaves from countries like Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso and Senegal. To 
find out more about how this happened, we telephoned Moroccan historian Mohamed Enaji in Rabat. Professor Enaji told us that slaves began arriving in Morocco in the 8th and 9th centuries, shortly after the first Arab conquerors. Because you know that in the Empire Musulman, c'est la formation de l'État, la formation des grandes familles, la formation d'une bourgeoisie urbaine, la classe rurale dominante, notamment les Khaïds, qui ont accru la, la demande des esclaves. Professor Enaji says it was the creation of the new Muslim state with its large families, urban bourgeoisie and dominant rural class that created demand for slaves. By the Middle Ages, black slaves were prized members of the state military. By the time of the Sadians in the 16th century, we find a wealth of documentation about black slaves in Morocco. Professor Enaji also told us that West African slaves became integrated into Moroccan society relatively easily because they were already Muslims. They lost their languages quickly and adopted Arabic. The word Gnawa first appears during the 19th century to describe an African slave language, and Gnawa songs still contain artifacts of Bambara and Fula. But that's not surprising when you consider that new slaves continued to arrive in Morocco even in the early decades of the 20th century. Author and composer Paul Bowles wrote that he heard Gnawa musicians actually speaking Bambara around 1930 when he first went to Morocco. Over 60 years later, Deborah Caption found only scarce remains of this Malian language. It's true that the Ouled al-Bambara, the sons of Bambara, takes on a great importance in the Ganawa ceremony. It's interesting that there are no really sentences, there are names in the ceremonies. Names can't be translated. Languages are translated, but names are not. So the names are what remain in the ceremonies, the names of the spirits. As for the development of Gnawa's spiritual and healing arts, we don't know a lot. Ceremonies were held within communities, not on the public stage as today, and they were not documented. But we do know that the powers of the Gnawa came to be understood and respected in Moroccan society during the 19th century. People would call on the Gnawa when confronted with mysterious afflictions, and I don't mean just physical ailments. Deborah Caption cites extensive scholarly work on the power of trance to help people confront and resolve experiences of oppression, even historic oppression. So within the sphere of trance, other things are possible. Women are possessed by male spirits, and you can then talk back symbolically to those who oppress you. In the context of the Ganawa ceremony, there's also a kind of talking back to a past in slavery, which one can then master, in a sense.
Mustafa Bagbou of Marrakesh with the influential 1990 CD release, Night Spirit Masters. In our songs often ask God for forgiveness. That might seem strange for people whose forefathers were the victims of slavery. Deborah Caption says this focus on forgiveness is something the Gnawa share with the many Sufi orders that surround them in Morocco. If you frequent any of the Sufi groups, you find songs that ask for forgiveness and healing. Heal us God, heal us God. Dawina, Dawina comes up all over Sufi music. The Gnawa are not Sufis. They don't have a hagiography of a sheikh who left um, writings. But the practice of Islam in Morocco is very Sufi-influenced. Um, devotion through chanting, through movement, through ecstatic forms of worship. This is not foreign to Moroccans in general. It's not just the Gnawa. of the Jilala Order, recorded by Afropop Worldwide at the 2004 Sacred Music Festival in Fez, Morocco. Find out more about Gnawa music on our website, afropop.org. Okay, are you ready to experience a Gnawa ceremony? The ceremony is called a Lila, and I'm going to turn over the narration to Deborah Caption and Tim Abdelafusen. Tim completed his ethnomusicology PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a Gnawa musician himself, and his dissertation documents the roughly 180 songs commonly played during a lila. To begin our virtual lila, we asked Tim to tell us why people might decide to hold a ceremony in the first place. There's a few different reasons that a lila could take place. There might be a person that is suffering from some sort of affliction, maybe either mental distress or emotional distress, or maybe a physical paralysis or some sort of affliction that is suspected to have been caused by one of the Gnawa spirits. In that case, a lila could be undertaken as a divination, as a way to find out which of those Gnawa spirits was responsible. In other cases, people already know that they have this relationship with one spirit or another. And those folks may have to annually sponsor a ceremony. In other cases, a lila could be sponsored to ward off possible problems that might come in the future or give thanks for bad things not happening in the past. Uh, so there are several reasons for which uh, a ceremony might be undertaken. First of all, Lila means night. It happens at night. The first thing that happens is that they make a sacrifice. Now, depending on the spirit and depending on one's ability to buy the animal, it may be a black goat, it may be a red rooster, it depends on what the spirit demands. 
All sacrifice in Islam, of course, is done in a ritual way with prayer. Um, but this is a, a very particular form of sacrifice for the spirits. The blood that comes out of the animal is very powerful. There will be people who will go and touch the blood, put it on their bodies. And when the sacrifice is made, some people go into trance spontaneously. It's a very powerful moment when blood is spilled for the spirits. During the ritual sacrifice, there is one particular, very important suite of songs that is played. It's called the Fatih al-Rahba, which means the opening of the space. Now, you only hear this suite at very high points in the ritual ceremony. Um, it serves to call all of the spirits down, uh, as opposed to other songs which only address Sidi Musa or uh, Balaiji or, or one particular spirit. This suite calls all the spirits to be present. So at that moment that the blood is spilt, all of the spirits are being attracted by this particular suite of songs. The lila, the actual ceremony, takes place sometimes the next day. The ganawa will arrive. The guests and invited people arrive little by little. And at that time, there's what one can call laba, that is play or farja, a spectacle performance, dancing and music that is not ritual music per se. It's basically to create ambiance, to create community. It's a lot of fun. It's not uh, to invoke the spirits, not yet. That can go on for several hours. Praja, the entertainment section, uh, consists of a series of songs that are accompanied by dances performed by members of the hired musical ensemble. So this contrasts with the later sections where guests or anybody might possibly fall into trance. This is a display for an audience. It is very entertaining. The dances are, are wonderful. Ganawa specifically call it entertainment, and they, they sort of downplay it a little bit, but... I find that the content of the lyrics of those songs, it's very deep. It's in the songs of the Fraja that the Gnawa really sing about their African origins, the experience of slavery, of being uprooted and feeling like strangers in another land. There are a number of songs that deal with these sorts of things. Probably the most famous one would be Khalim Bara Meskin, where they sing Sidi Yakul Hema, Lala Takulish Hema, Khalim Bara Al-Adim. The master is eating meat, and the mistress is eating meat, and poor Khalimbara, Uncle Mbara, who is the uh, sort of the archetypal uh, domestic slave, is sitting in the kitchen gnawing on a bone. point, the Ganawa will agree that it's the moment and they will go outside of the residence, if it's a home or if it's an apartment building, 
and they invoke the spirits. Candles are lit, according to Viviana Packett's virgin girls that hold these candles. And the incense that are going to be used throughout the ceremony are taken outside. A brazier is also taken outside. Incense are burned. And the Ganawa come out with their big tabul, which are very large snare drums, which they hit with sticks. Snare drums are often decorated with henna, which is very propitious. And they invoke the spirits at that time, letting everyone know in the community that this is taking place. After the invocation is finished, people go back into the home or the apartment, cross over the threshold, and the ceremony then officially begins. From that point on, the music is very powerful because it will bring the spirits through those who are possessed by them. The Muqaddama, the female overseer, is there to supervise because there are people who fall rather violently and people that need to be held. Um, very often women are held by scarves around their waist so that they don't fall. There is a whole suite throughout the night of spirits. Each suite is a color and in each color there are spirits that come through. Ganawa call the possessor spirits the maluk, which literally means the owners. The maluk belong to a category of beings called the jinn, or the jnun in Moroccan Arabic. The jinn are beings of smokeless fire whose existence is confirmed in the Quran. Now, not all jnun belong to this group of Ganawa spirits that tend to possess people. Most of them keep to themselves most of the time, but there's a certain group among them that uh, enter into these relationships with humans. So there are the white spirits, and the white spirits are holy spirits, the green spirits as well. Green's the color of Islam. The spirits themselves have religions, so there are Islamic spirits, and there are a few that are Jewish, but that aren't invoked very much anymore, and that's interesting in itself. There are pagan spirits. There are red spirits like Sidi Hamu. Sidi Hamu is the spirit of the slaughterhouse, and he's very difficult to manage, very demanding.
Sidi Mimun, black spirit. There's Lella Mira, who is yellow, and I smile every time I even say her name because she is a, a laughing, joyous spirit, likes perfume and henna and pretty clothes. And uh, when her music comes on, if women start giggling and laughing, you know that uh, she's making herself known. Throughout the evening, the different colors are invoked and the different spirits with them. Each spirit has a song, each spirit has a color, each spirit has an incense, each spirit has something either to drink or to eat. So all of the senses are involved. All of that serves to push people over the edge. And, you know, what is the exact trigger? It's, it's hard to say. Sometimes it is hearing the opening notes of one particular song. For those who attend Leela's a lot, they know what order the songs are coming in, so they can prepare. They know that the red spirits are right around the corner, so they sort of prepare themselves for that. For others that aren't familiar with the uh, unfolding of the songs, they might get caught off guards and all of a sudden, boom, you know, they're, they're breathing the red incense, they are uh, seeing the red-colored scarves and robes around, and they're hearing the songs for uh, Sidi Hamu. It can be really overpowering. Trancing is very low in the hips. There's a lot of stamping of the feet. The arms very often are behind the body. The chest is forward. A lot of the time, the hair is loosened. You know, they'll be circulating their heads, moving their body rather briskly from side to side. So the hair comes undone. Again, people are always covered when possible and, and the more experienced transfers will just put the cloth over them and over their entire face so that really they're not visible at all except as a kind of silhouette under this cloth. They also may fall to the ground. They also may be on their knees and swinging their head back and forth. Some people seek out the incense as if it were a kind of source of sustenance. Sometimes they are given knives, which they use to cut themselves. The mortification that happens during the ceremony is quite impressive the first time you see it, as all mortification ceremonies are. You quickly get used to it, and what is always impressive is that people are not hurt. There's a kind of symbolic wound that's created, but it is not a wound that injures, but rather symbolizes a healing, a cure. Deborah Caption and Tim Abdelafusen narrating the stages of an old night Gnawa ceremony or Lila. It's worth noting that the people who get possessed by spirits at a Lila are most often women, but the musicians are always men. At the center of this whole event is the Malem or Master. He's the one playing that big three-stringed pentatonic lute, the gimbri. Sometimes it's called hajuj or sintir. Deborah says that the success of Alila is all about the interaction between the mahalem and the possessing spirits, or mluk. 
there's a, a back and forth and a kind of conversation going on between the spirit that's inhabiting the person and the musician. Sometimes the ganel will stop playing, the qaraqab, which are these very loud, heavy iron cymbals, and the hajuj, they will stop all of the percussion and melodic instruments and just sing or just clap their hands. Once that happened, and the spirit that was dancing in front of them started making the motion for the qaraqab to start playing again because the spirit wanted the qaraqab to begin. So, you know, this is a very interactive event at all levels. One person gets up to trance, others will get up to trance. And the sign of a real good master is that a lot of people get up to trance. A real good master is not just a master of his instrument, that goes without saying. But a real good master is a master of the spirits. That's felt. It's palpable. Coming up, Gnawa fusions with jazz, rock, reggae, and more. 21st century Gnawa music when we continue with Traveling Spirit Masters. And remember, you can read interviews with our guests and see gorgeous photographs of the Gnawa at afropop.org. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Abdelafusen learned to play the gimbri or hajouj during his time in Morocco. He says that Gnawa music derives its awesome power from a surprisingly small set of musical elements. When a trancer becomes possessed at the lila, the mahalem, the master, uses these elements to effectively communicate with the spirit. So for a song like Albania, for example, from the Red Suite, the gimbri player has basically a series of four phrases that he uses. So there's the first phrase, and then the second, third, and the fourth. That's basically the whole of the melodic material of that song. So a gimbri player starts off with phrase A. Then he can repeat it. Can vary it. And eventually it gives way to phrase B, which he can also repeat before going on to phrase C and always back to phrase D. And then there's this little groove maker phrase called the muima. It can kind of get repeated indefinitely. Sometimes a trancer really wants to hear the muima, or sometimes they really want to hear the punchy phrases of the gimbri's main statement. So this is where the extra musical knowledge of the malam comes in. He has to look at a trancer's condition and see whether they've had enough, whether they need more, whether he needs to delay the gratification of their expectations, or whether um, he can give them more of what they're asking for. These are some of the techniques that a gimbri player uses. Before we leave the Lila, we must hear about one last Gnawa spirit known to every Moroccan. That's Aisha Kandisha. Here's Deborah Caption. Aisha Kandisha. Laihafud. <laughs> May God protect us. Uh, Aisha Kandisha is a genie 
a woman, uh, very, very beautiful. I've never seen her, but I've spoken to people who have, who have visions of Aisha Kandisha. She has goat feet, and that's how you know that she's a genie and not a woman. She is an enchantress and uh, will really enslave whoever she wants. But she's very, very powerful and possesses women and men. She comes at the very end of the ceremony, just before night turns into day. In the course of her suite, her songs, you see the sunrise, and then it's over. Aisha Kandisha has been rising in popularity. She is by far the most popular spirit. What does it mean that she's more and more popular? Is this a feminization of the Ganawa pantheon? Is this a comment on um, the diminishment of patriarchy in Morocco? Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. One thing Deborah does know is that all this trancing and dancing and music actually serves as a force for coherence in Moroccan society. It struck me when I first started doing this research was that you see old women up on the floor and they've got their canes and they can hardly stand up, but they're trancing. And, you know, it's not age-limited. Sometimes the trance phenomena, for example, here is very age-limited. It's for youth. Uh, you know, techno-trance, the clubs and things are, are for young people. But in Morocco, and this has always been the case, these ceremonies have no age limit. You find young children there who are basically sitting and watching the whole spectacle. And you have old, old people who have been doing it all their lives. Breaking 1970 debut, Morocco's Nasser Diwan. As we said before, 
This group, along with Jil Jilala, rocked North Africa with fusions of Afro-Arab traditions, rock and roll freedom, and strong social messages. Deborah Caption says these groups fit the mood of the time perfectly. Morocco had achieved independence in 1956, and it blossomed culturally during the 1960s and 70s. It was a very secular time. People were interested in independence and the development of nationhood more than, for example, Orthodox Islam. It was a time internationally where all sorts of things were going on in Palestine, in Lebanon. It was a time of great pan-Arabism and revolutionary politics, the Black Panthers in the United States. And Moroccans interested in creating a state but not in being oppressed by it were very influenced by this international ambiance. There was the Pan-African Conference in Algiers in 1969, and Moroccan dissident Ibrahim Sarfati, a Moroccan Jew, was there, and he talked about the Black Panthers and how this essential energy from Africa had to revitalize Morocco and exhorted North Africans to also be inspired by these movements. Along come Gilles Jalala and Nessel Riwan. I hope it's not unfair to say that they're kind of like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones of Morocco. They gathered up the energy of the entire generation and they did it in part by integrating a Ganawa trancey aesthetic into their music. Of course, there was a trance even in, in rock and roll. I mean, it was a very psychedelic moment. Jimi Hendrix, Robin Trower, right? All of that music, which was very trancey. <laughs> spent just nine days in North Africa in August 1969. According to Hendrick's biographer, Charles Cross, those might have been the most joyous days of his short life. We know that somewhere in there, Hendrix jammed with Gnawa musicians. We also know that other rock and roll icons visited Morocco around that time. Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, and of course, the Rolling Stones. All this certainly left its mark on the Gnawa.
from his 1993 release Trance, the great Hassan Hakmoun with his old group Zahar. By the time Hassan recorded this rock and roll take on the song Bania from the Red Spirit Suite, he traveled a long road from his birthplace in Marrakesh to New York City. <laughs> Hassan has lived, recorded, and performed in the U.S. since 1987. Hassan said his life in music began with the Gnawa ceremony he saw when he was just seven years old. I got involved very deeply when my sister, Mina, who was two years old, got touched by the spirits and her body completely burned all over. And my mom did the ceremony night for her. They uh, sacrificed a little goat and put it, the blood to go into the drain to make peace with the spirits. Then they put the little blood on her body and they took the body out of the skin of the goat and put her inside the skin and made some drumming take her out. Everything's clear in this spirit. I saw that and I go, oh my God, this is amazing. I think I'm going to take this very seriously to learn more as a kid and to help people. So by the age of 14, I'm already mastered, you know, in the Gnawa music and performing leelas in ceremonies myself. Hassan would go on to be a Gnawa messenger and a trailblazer for Gnawa music fusions. Here's a taste of his classic 1991 collaboration with Adam Rudolph and Don Cherry, Gift of the Gnawa. Gimbri and vocal Hassan Hakmoun and Adam Rudolph on percussion and the late Don Cherry on trumpet. 
When it comes to jazz fusions with Gnawa music, we can't overlook the internationally celebrated pianist and composer Randy Weston, who went to Morocco on a State Department tour in 1967 and wound up starting a nightclub in Tangier and living there for many years. Other jazzmen who performed with the Gnawa include Archie Shep and Pharaoh Sanders. Thanks to them, jazz legends are numbered among the Gnawa ancestors at Dar Gnawa, the House of Gnawa, a museum and center of learning in Tangier. That's a story in itself and a testament to the profound connection Randy Weston forged between Moroccans and African Americans. Randy talks about his entry into the Gnawa culture in terms of attending Alila and being so taken by the songs to Sidi Musa that he was in trance, he said, for a week. Sidi Musa, of course, is Moses, who led the Jews out of Egypt, out of slavery, who parted the waters and liberated the Jews. So it's a very symbolic spirit for Randy because it has to do with slavery, connecting him to the African-American experience, but also to liberation and to water and to the color blue. This color blue is so symbolic, obviously, of the blues. And Randy talks about the fact that Duke Ellington even had his piano painted blue. So Randy Weston writes a beautiful, beautiful piece called Blue Moses that he plays at every concert that he gives. It's his way of propitiating his spirit. Thank you. 
The amazing Randy Weston and David Murray with Blue Moses. You can find a link to our full hour profile of Randy Weston, Spirit of the Ancestors, at afropop.org. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Joshua Melman Charitable Trust, Adam and Melanie Lewis, and PRX affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. the sound of a big crowd greeting Gnawa musicians at the Gnawa and World Music Festival in Essaouira, Morocco. This festival began in 1998, and today some 400,000 people come to hear the Gnawa perform with a broad array of international talent. You might hear Gnawa music rubbing shoulders with jazz fusion. from the French-Algerian group Gnawa Diffusion even brings in a taste of Zydeco accordion.
story of Gnawa fusion is big enough for a whole program of its own. But what does all this mean for Gnawa traditional culture? Now that Gnawa musicians have entered the global marketplace, will the next generation immerse themselves and attain the deep spiritual knowledge of their forefathers? And if they don't, will the Lila ceremony itself survive? Historian Mohamed Enaji believes that Gnawa ritual practice has mostly devolved into a spectacle. Deborah Caption worries that young, hotshot Gnawa musicians casually proclaim themselves masters, even though they may have little experience mastering the spirits in ceremonies. Even Gnawa fusion pioneer Hassan Hakmoun fears that the deepest Gnawa tradition may be lost with changing times. It might. It might. Because everybody now in Morocco, musicians who are not Gnawa, are more using this music, you know, to uh, make it more popular with different styles like rap and reggae and rock and all that. And I think, as it used to be when I was growing up, the children of the Gnawa, all you hear is traditional music and learning and, you know, pass it along. And now, the new generations, they are more, like here in America, you have different interests of music. So I feel maybe it will be lost. But in other ways, may not. Why? Because there is still a historic festivals of traditional ceremonies every year. So that might keep it going. But if that goes, then yeah, it might go. And it will be lost. I would be cautious about saying that the secrets of the Gnawa are gone. I have reason to doubt that because I know masters. And I think it would be a big insult to say that all of their knowledge is gone. It may be going, but I don't know that it's completely gone. And I think of the ethnomusicologist Jean Dorang in France, one of the most well-known and thorough scholars of Sufism. He says, the sacred never disappears, it just changes form. I had a Gnawa master tell me as well, it's not my business if I play in a nightclub or if I play in a Gnawa ceremony. The spirits do the work. I just play the music. Spirits do the work. Now, that's, I think, a nice attitude. I would like to believe it. And I wouldn't want to be so cynical as to say that there can be no spirituality where there's commodification. In this world that we live in now, where we're in sacred music festivals and sacred pilgrimages that are organized by tourist agencies, tourism and the sacred are so integrally linked that if one canceled out the other, we would really be in a hopeless world. <laughs> I think that they can coexist. Thanks to Deborah Caption, Mohamed Enaji, Tim Abdelafuson, and Hassan Hakmoun for their help with this program. Remember, you can read interviews and find out lots more about Gnawa music, plus sign up for our e-newsletter on our website, afropop.org. And one more thing, we are thrilled to announce Camp Afropop. Three days of musical magic featuring Natu Kamara, Bakiti Kumalo, Pedrito Martinez, Yakuba Sisoko, Sampa Mapangala, and Jake Blunt. Join Georges Collinet and the Afropop team for concerts, interactive workshops, jam sessions, and late night dance parties at the 100-acre Full Moon Resort in the Catskill Hills May 28 to 31st, 2024. Visit campafropop.com for details. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. 
Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Banning Air. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan. Banning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Sevian Biggs. Our director of development is Mukwe Wabeisi Yolwe. And I'm Georges Collinet.